What's up, y'all? This is John Lawrence, and this is episode 89, Distraction in the OR with Dr. Heather Turcott. Y'all, I'm so stoked to bring in this conversation. I caught up with Dr. Turcott earlier this summer as she was finishing her residency in anesthesia, and I'm pumped to finally get this out to you in early September of 2022. This topic was the focus of her residency project in Senior Grand Rounds presentation, and it definitely created a stir in our group as CRNAs, physicians, residents, and SRNAs grappled with how to appropriately use cell phones and other technology in their practices. Now, since it's late summer, early fall, I got to give a shout out to all the residents and SRNAs out there who graduated this summer. It's always fun to see y'all wrap up clinicals and residency projects and transition into your new jobs or fellowships. I love getting text messages and photos from SRNAs of their board results with the word pass printed right in the middle of the page. It's such an incredible moment that makes all of the hard work worth it. So thanks to all of you who have reached out by email, text, and social media recently with your passing boards, photos, positive reviews and ratings of the podcast and questions. This podcast puts me in touch with so many amazing people. I've recently heard from experienced providers to newly minted CRNAs on the day they pass boards to brand new CA1s over to ICU nurses who found the podcast and are on the path to becoming anesthesia providers. Wherever you are in your own journey, my hope is that Anesthesia Guidebook will be a go-to guide for you as you seek to get your learn on and master your craft. All right, so Heather Turcott joins me in this fascinating conversation that weaves through the considerations around using cell phones in the OR, checking email or the internet, music that's playing, conversations, door swings, and other forms of distraction in the operating room. Dr. Turcott was born and raised in the great state of Maine. She earned a doctorate in physical therapy and practiced as a physical therapist for four years before going back to medical school in 2014 at the University of New England. Dr. Turcott finished her residency in anesthesiology at Maine Medical Center in 2022 and entered into private practice. Outside of medicine, she enjoys spending time with her husband and three kids who are nine, six, and one years old at the time of this recording. She also enjoys going to the beach and drinking lots of coffee like most residents do. Throughout her residency in anesthesiology, I was always impressed with Heather's laser-like focus and determination to excel while maintaining an authentic kindness and optimism towards everyone around her. In this conversation, Dr. Turcott brings this discussion to life with a case study where an anesthesia provider settled out of court in a dispute on negligence in a case where the patient experienced hypotension in a PA arrest, survived the operating room, but then died a few days later. The anesthesia provider had used their cell phone and anesthesia workstation computer to check email and online news stories. Interestingly, an expert anesthesia witness testified that the actions of the anesthesia provider in managing the patient during the challenging times of the case were flawless. But just because the provider had used their cell phone and surfed the internet on the work computer, which was all discoverable data, the legal team advised that they settle to avoid a jury verdict in the case. Cell phone use, open internet access, including email, Music playing in the OR and so many other forms of distraction are common elements in operating rooms across the United States. Some institutions create policies that limit cell phone use in the OR. Others have policies that are more vague, while others still have no formal policies around cell phone use in the OR. There's legitimate considerations for each of these. 
on one hand, how does a hospital enforce a policy that's very strict that they might set up, like zero cell phone use in the operating room? Does creating a policy like that set the institution up for compliance issues or litigation? Then on the other hand, how can hospitals help engineer safe and reliable environments for providers to work in? As technology continues to become more and more central to the work we do, the issues of attention span, distraction, user experience of technology, and systems engineering to create and maintain safe environments will remain important factors for each provider, group, and institution to consider. Dr. Turcotte has provided a list of references for the show notes to this episode, which can be found at anesthesiaguidebook.com forward slash episode 89. And with that, let's get to the show. Well, Heather Turcotte, thanks for joining me on the podcast. I'm super happy to be here. I've never done this before. That's awesome. (laughs) Uh, It's super early. We're in our OB call room at like 6 a.m., and because uh, you're you're about to finish your residency, I am. Yes, can finishing you, strong on OB here. Can, well, yeah, <laughs> as all third year residents do, of course. Uh, tell us just before we get started on distraction of the OR. Give us a little bit of like the ten thousand foot view of Heather Turcott. Oh, sure. You, you've got a super interesting story. You were a PT before you went to anesthesia training. So give us the rundown on where you're at. Sure. I feel like I've been in school forever honestly, which I probably have. But uh, yeah, I was pre-med in college and then I kind of made a last minute decision to go to physical therapy school instead and got my doctorate in physical therapy and worked for about four years in like outpatient orthopedics, sports medicine, and then made the decision to go back to medical school. I kind of had a pretty good idea coming in that I would go into anesthesiology um, and went through medical school, went through anesthesiology training. Here we are, almost done. I had Started medical school with one kid, had two more along the way, so I have three kids. So oh my goodness. It's been a journey. That's a lot. It's been a How journey. old are your kids right now? So they're nine, five, and one. Nine, five, and one. Yeah, quite it, the age spread. Yeah, June of 2022 when this is coming out, and you're almost done, so congratulations. Thank you. I'm sure your family's stoked. They're so excited. My yeah. kids don't really know what it means. Sure. I mean, I've always been a resident, essentially, in their, in their minds, but... They know that I have a new job. They know that I'll be around more <laughs> and home more and not have to work as much. So they're they're really excited. My yeah. husband is also obviously very excited. Yeah. Well, we are very sorry to lose you here uh, at Maine Medical Center. It's been a pleasure to work with you the yeah, last four thank years. You. But you're still going to be close. I'm still going to be close. Yeah. And you live down the road anyway. So we maybe do. We'll I think we live other. like a mile apart. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, your senior grand rounds uh, presentation was phenomenal. It was Thank probably you. the most buzzworthy conversation that I've seen at grand rounds uh, in the recent uh, past. So people were definitely talking about this. And it was on the topic of distraction in the OR. So uh, to get into this, you, you have tons of data to share with us, but you started, you kind of framed your talk with a case study. And I, I wonder if you would, so this is straight out of the literature. Correct. It's a court case. Uh, and I wonder if you would just kind of give us the rundown on that case. Sure. It was a case that I found um, in a publication that was talking really about the legal ramifications of distraction. And I thought it was a really interesting case. And so it was a case that an elective case in the cath lab and essentially what happened was, you know, the patient was unstable the whole time and um, ultimately ended up passing away. And they brought in an anesthesia expert and basically found like no fault in the treatment. Like the the treatment from the anesthesia team was 
know, perfectly correct, but um, some of the nurses in the operating room mentioned that the anesthesia provider, and they don't mention if it was the anesthesiologist or um, a nurse anesthetist, was on their phone for some of the case yeah. and was looking up their email for some of the case. And so that kind of sparked the this court case of, you know, is that okay? Is it not okay? And, you know, what's discoverable, what's not, right. um, and how that looks. So that's kind of how I framed it because I think we all look at our cell phones at some point in the operating room or check our email or are reading something. Yeah, it's, it's super very common. common. I mean, yes. we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna normalize that. I don't know if we have the authority to normalize that, right, <laughs> legally, but but it is common. Like, it's let's just name it. Common. super common. Which is interesting for us, but yeah. when I talk to people who are not – you know, working in the operating right. room at all, especially with no medical training, you know, my family and whatnot, they're like sort of horrified to yes. hear that this happens. Yeah. Um, and so I thought that was really interesting. I think that's why pilots have doors. Well, I'm in obviously security, right. but like we don't know what pilots do, right. but if I had to guess, they probably have access to reading material or phones or whatever. I know there's the, the concept of sterile cockpit, which we'll, we'll mm -hmm. get to here in a minute, but, um, but yeah, it, I think it is surprising to people that, uh, that phones are in the operating room and that people use them and not just for uh, task-oriented operations, if that makes sense. Right. Like people cruising their phones. And there's certainly now, some research that shows that during, you know, kind of, I don't want to say boring times in the operating room, but times when there's not a lot going on, when you're kind of on cruise control, that actually being engaged in something else keeps you more engaged in what's going on, which, which is, is interesting. It's super interesting, mm -hmm. right? And, and... The idea that, right, so, so I think, I mean, obviously, the, 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 the audience that we're talking to is largely anesthesia providers, but my mother also listens to this, to this Aww, podcast, so shout out to Grandma that's Gail. That's amazing. Uh, so there are members of the public. There are other folks that I know that, that routinely listen to this, uh, and I, I think it is interesting. I mean, you, you kind of hinted at this idea of boring times in the operating room, and so we're anesthesia providers, right? So we are very task-saturated at the beginning of a case when we get someone off to sleep. And then it's, it is quite cruise control where right. if we're doing a good job, we don't have to do a whole lot. Like the patient is stable. We're constantly monitoring their vital signs right. with big displays, audible chirps from the monitors, lots, lots of sensory input that tells us that a patient is totally fine. And so it's only natural at that moment to realize that your attention can drift elsewhere. I think I think for maybe a lay person, it would be like driving on the highway. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of activity when you start a car. You turn the engine, you buckle your seatbelt, you check to make sure you have gas. There's no you know warnings on your dashboard. You cruise out of your driveway, secondary road onto the highway. Fifteen minutes, thirty minutes into the you know say a six hour trip, you're cruising. You kind of lose you lose almost that conscious like I'm driving a two thousand pound vehicle. And you start thinking about other things. You have a Correct. conversation. You drink some water. I mean, you know, drinks at our institution aren't allowed in the operating room. Right. But in terms of attention span, it's a very similar thing. Right. To but it's interesting because I feel like as soon as something is different, even if our attention is somewhere else, as soon as there's an alarm or a noise that's different or the surgeon says something to us, we're very quick to tune into that, which is yeah. an interesting skill that you learn. As well. And it is a learned skill. It is Like a I work skill. a lot with our um, SRNAs, our student registered nurse anesthetists, and early on in their training, they're task saturated at everything, right? right? And and so there appropriately is no time to do much of anything else, even have conversations, which is where I'm, I'm doing a conference coming up on uh, how to handle questions in the operating room from preceptors to students and how students can navigate that. 
when, when preceptors even ask them clinically oriented questions and they're early on in their training, it's overwhelming because Very they're much. just like, they're just trying to tape an endotracheal tube and someone's asking them about, you know, what's the vapor pressure of desflurane or whatever. And you're like, I'm going to I'm gonna have to get back to you on that. <laughs> so just to go back to this case. So, sure. so elective case in the uh, cath lab and a couple other details you shared during your grand rounds presentation is that the anesthesia provider was on their phone there were times during the case where they had to intervene for hypotension and hemodynamic instability. Correct. They communicated with the cardiologist doing the procedure. Multiple times. They got through the procedure fine, and uh, the patient went to ICU and then subsequently passed away a Correct. couple of days later. So it was not an intraoperative death. No, I think that's a good thing to clarify. Yeah. It was not. There was you know, a PEA arrest in the operating room and subsequently ended up getting ROSC yep. and then going to the ICU, but the patient did not uh, pass away in yep. the operating room, correct? And then you talked about what's discoverable. So in this case, they looked at the phone records of this anesthesia provider. So what did they find when they looked at that? They did. They pulled the phone records. Um, so it's interesting. They can pull any of your text history. They can pull any of your call history. Um, and they can tell kind of who you were texting, like the number essentially, and um, for how long you were talking to someone or whatnot. And so what they found was, they didn't elaborate too much on it in the literature, but what they found was that the anesthesia provider did not send or receive any text messages during the case, yep. which is great. Um, but they can also pull from the computer that they're using as well. And so they were able to pull all of that data and found that the anesthesia provider was checking their emails and was also looking at news stories on the computer. And they're able to pull all of those websites as well. Yeah. And so what was the outcome from, from the, the litigation? Case. So essentially, because, and the anesthesia provider admitted this, this was not something that they were, they were trying, trying to, to hide, hide or right. anything. Um, but the, the issue with this is that any of this data is just that, it's data. It's not hearsay, right? There's one thing with, you know, the nurse is saying one thing, the anesthesia provider is saying another right. thing. But when you have this concrete data, you can't, you can't essentially defend yourself. Like, yes, I was doing that. And so the ultimate decision was that the anesthesia provider should settle out of court because a jury going to court with this, a jury would not view this very positively at all. That right. the fact, as we talked about the fact that people don't understand necessarily exactly what we're doing in the operating room. And so the fact that, you know, this anesthesia provider was doing other things other than patient care would not be viewed very well at all. And so they settled out of court. Interesting. Correct. Interesting. And to your knowledge, they kept their license, but there was some sort of like insurance settlement over correct perhaps presumed negligence of some sort in terms of managing the case yes exactly right so there's been a lot recorded in the literature about distracted physicians distracted providers distracted so, doctoring is the term i kept seeing over and over again right yeah. right so when you look at this case and you think about this phenomenon that people do, and, and we'll talk specifically about cell phones, but you also have some interesting information about, you know, just surgeons and music and in the operating room. But in terms of, you know, what our experiences as anesthesia providers, what have been some of the key lessons or takeaways for you when you've looked into this issue? I think the biggest thing is understanding that it's probably not going to go away, honestly. Like we all have our cell phones with us and we do use them for clinical work. And so I think the, you know, the advice that I found over and over and that I gave at the end of, you know, the talk was that, 
you know, just be aware of what you're doing essentially and be aware of when you're doing it. You know, there are certainly times when you should not be on your cell phone or should not be on your computer looking other things up. Obviously induction and emergence are two of those times. I would be impressed, but horrified <laughs> if someone was on their cell phone during induction or an emergence. So, but I think any periods where the patient's unstable or, you know, there might be more going on in the operating room that you should pay, pay attention to, you shouldn't really be on your cell phone. And then just knowing that anything that you're doing is discoverable. So, you know, this text message that I sent to my husband, could I defend that in you know, court? Right. No, you know, it has nothing to do with what I'm doing. And so I'm very cautious about who I even will respond to. I'll look at texts because mostly because of my kids. If I didn't have my kids, I probably wouldn't. Yeah. But when a text comes in, you know, from my kids' school or their daycare, despite the fact that I've asked them to, you know, ask my husband first, sometimes they can't get a hold of him. And so I do look at that. And so I think just being aware that, you know, what you can and can't do. Right. Interesting. What other kinds of things did you find that were fascinating to you or interesting to you as you looked into this? There was so much data and research on distraction that I honestly didn't realize even existed because it's not something that we really talk about. You know, I hadn't ever received a lecture on this before. And I think it's something we just work with in this environment every day and we don't actually think much about it. But there is a lot going on in the operating room. So there's research on, as you mentioned, music. There's research on how many times the doors open and close, which is a distraction in and of itself. There's research on the volume within the operating room, just how loud it is, not just the music, but between the equipment and the conversations. And then there's data on conversations that you're having with people. So there's a lot that happens, I think, that we just work within and, and don't think much about it. But it's a, pr- it's a really busy place. It's a very stimulating place. Yeah, it is indeed. And I think different people have different tolerances of that. Like we have a surgeon here who loves to play music super loud and uh, it can be explicit music. And so it doesn't jive with everyone's personality in the operating room or, or preferences, I should say, in terms of language. Uh, and there have been conversations with that individual about, you know, what's an appropriate music choice and also volume. Uh, right. But there are also members of that team that thrive on Correct. that kind of energy. Mm-hmm. Like they, uh, you know, they're a trauma burn team and they are doing a lot of uh, um, aggressive work, if you, if you could frame it like that. And so they're just, you know, they're jamming off of that kind of energy in the operating room. I think what's interesting is how busy our workspace can be and how natural multitasking is. Like it's a very important skill set to anesthesia providers to be able to multitask, to be able to keep a lot of things moving at the same time. And when you have that lull in stimulation, it's I think it's normal for individuals to try to fill that space with some other kind of stimulation. You know, I think there's also another another element to this of just realizing like our, our habitual use of cell phones. What does anyone do in a social situation when the conversation dips off? They pull Every, their cell phone out. Everyone looks of at course. their cell phone. Of course they do. <laughs> like, what do you do yes. when you're waiting on anything in your life? You're in the grocery store line. You're at an airport terminal and you're waiting on a flight. You know, you pull your, you're in a physician's office waiting to be seen. You pull your phone out. Like... So, so shifting those habits as anesthesia providers, and we could talk about generational use, you know, like I know a few older CRNAs here who don't even take their cell phones into the operating room. There are some anesthesiologists that I've had conversations with about this who are very, very similar. 
and have very strong feelings about that. Yeah. Right. And then there's a younger generation that I think thrives on like the, the cell phone is just an integration of who they are. Right. Correct. I mean, we use it. I, some of the data that I pulled was, you know, there was a study done of anesthesia providers and 93% of people polled say they use their cell phone in the operating room yeah. in some way, shape or form. I would say that's probably pretty on par. If not, our percentage might be a little bit more. Right. Um, depending on, you know, who's working and whatnot. And so obviously we all do it. And um, there was some other data that said, you know, we check our cell phone at least once every 10 minutes. Yeah. When, you know, in, in our wake time period. And again, I think maybe that's a little bit low too, depending on the situation. Could be conservative. Yeah. For sure. So again, asking someone to change those habits, um, you know, for the majority of their work day, I don't think is very reasonable because I don't think it's going to happen. Right. And when you're talking about making policies in the operating room regarding cell phone use, you can go, there's, there's guidelines on how to do it, but you can go really restrictive. You can go very liberal. And the, the caution with going really restrictive is that it's not going to be followed. People are going to break it all the time. And then you're going to figure out how you deal with that. You know, are there any right. sort of disciplinary actions and it's, it's probably not going to go over very well. And so right. the recommendation is kind of like somewhere in between, like maybe have some sort of policy on it, but, um, don't restrict cell phone use at all. Yep. What did you find from national organizations? I know you looked at ASA, AANA, and AORN in terms of what they say about cell phone use. You know, they all have like position statements on distractions and cell phones are a part of every single one of those organizations' position statements on distractions. And essentially, you know, the American College or of Surgeons and then um, the Association of Operating Room Nurses basically mention it, but say they, they can be viewed as a distraction, you should limit their use, but they don't really go into it. And then the ASA goes a little bit further in saying that, you know, there are periods where it shouldn't be used. You should minimize distractions. And they're very specific about induction, emergence, um, critical surgical dissections, you know, anytime that there's, you know, an unstable patient. Nobody ever says anything about transport, probably because it doesn't necessarily happen within the operating room, but I think that we should add transport to that too. When you're moving a patient from the OR to PACU, from the ICU to the OR. Right. Obviously those kinds of things. So it's interesting when you think about a cell phone as a tool of communication, right? And a tool of reference. Uh, one of the responses I heard from a CRNA after your talk was that, uh, you know, we have Epic, our electronic medical record, on our cell phones. And so we're able to look up information. So if the, if the main computer goes down in an anesthesia workstation, which in our cath lab is, you know, not uncommon that you might have <laughs> a glitch of things, you know, the machines get moved around a lot. So this CRNA was saying, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm looking up patient data on my phone, which is no different than looking at it on a computer screen that's attached to the monitor. Right. It's just on a mobile device. Where I trained in Asheville, they actually issued iPads to all of their anesthesia providers and expected them to do their charting on a mobile tablet. So when they would go to PACU, they didn't have computers on wheels at every PACU station, but the anesthesia provider would literally chart their handoff note on this mobile device. I've heard that. They were unlocked mobile devices, right? So they, they weren't restricted. And so, uh, you know, again, it was a huge source of potential distraction in the operating room in terms of people playing games, uh, reading materials, magazines, that kind of stuff. You know, but back then, I remember one of my preceptors, 
he always had the latest edition of Mountain Biking Magazine uh, <laughs> tucked in his tucked in his back pocket. And as soon as things were stable in the OR, he would kick back in a chair and just blatantly flip through. And you know, there's old stories of people reading newspapers in the operating room. Of course, room. right. This is uh, not a brand new topic. Right, Cell the, phones the, are newer, but this is not new. The, the ABCs of anesthesia back in the day, airway, book, chair. <laughs> <laughs> I think some people still think that, honestly. <laughs> so it's really interesting. But when you look at it from a communication tool, you know, uh, our team, we communicate a lot via text we message. We absolutely do. Do you need a break? Can you do this next case after you're done? Can you go do this? Uh, hey, I've got a question about this. I'm in this OR dealing with this thing. How do you normally handle this? I mean, texting even in the operating room can be a form of just communication. communication. Is it is it any different than the cell phone go, than the phone on the wall going off and having to walk away from your patient to grab the phone off the hook and have a conversation with someone? Uh, so it's, I think there's huge gray zones. There are very big gray zones, which is, I think, why it's such a source for discussion, which was my goal, honestly, for Grand Rounds, is I just wanted to make people think because I thought this topic is really interesting and there's so much gray in there that no one really knows exactly, you know, what's okay and what's not. Yeah. And I would agree with the communication. I've actually had to change my settings on my phone. I usually have it completely silent in the operating room, but the past year I have actually changed it to silent but vibrate when I text because I have so many attendings who text me when I'm in the operating room as opposed to, I don't carry like a phone on me, um, like an issued phone. So they would yeah. have to call the phone on the wall. And again, that's a source of the phone's ringing, you know, source of distraction for the surgeons or distraction for, you know, everyone in the, in the room. So, um, I have changed it so that I know that they're texting me because there's been plenty of times where they come in, did you get my text? I said, no, I haven't looked at my phone. <laughs> right, right. Well, and then to Rolodex through the communication devices that we have. So we've got pagers, some 1970s, 1980s technology. I'm amazed they still exist. <laughs> I don't know how it's possible, but they really do. Yeah, like we're expected to carry a pager at all times. <laughs> we often have issued phones. So uh, we've got these you know, portable phones, ASCOM is the brand that uh, this institution uses. So, you know, they work throughout the hospital, but sometimes can cut in and out. And then everyone pretty much carries their own personal device. Mm -hmm. and, and that issue alone is, and then there's secure text messaging through the electronic medical record uh, where you can text through Epic. So, you know, the issue of how do you optimize just communication in the operating room is key and that we're all expected to carry, you know, three forms of communication but, but is it reasonable for a group to rely on text messages and cell phones as the primary form of communication? I think it is. Mm -hmm. But again, it comes into what's discoverable. Where's your attention span at? And those things are, I think, very hard to parse out when something goes sideways in the operating room. You right. know, if a case gets litigated, how do you navigate? You know, and this is, I don't know how to answer this question, but how do you navigate what is appropriate use of uh, personal electronic devices, as I think your slide said? Personal, um, yes, yeah, that's yeah. what it what's called in the literature. <laughs> yes, and I don't know the answer to that either because oftentimes, you know, if something goes, you know, not as expected in the operating room, it's something that again you didn't expect. And so, if you're if everything's fine <laughs> at the beginning of the case and you're using your cell phone or you know doing something, and then you know two hours later, you know something happens. I mean. Was the two hours before okay because the patient was stable right. and you were doing everything that you were supposed to be doing? Or, I mean, everything's discoverable, right? So they're going to look at the whole umbrella of the right. case, but I don't know. 
Right. I don't know how that would be viewed. Right. Well, it, and I also think about, you know, and I guess you could look at, I don't know, maybe maybe airline accidents or, or any, any kind of transportation accident. You know, there's been train accidents, certainly vehicular collisions, you know, trucking accidents, uh, school bus accidents. You know, distracted operators is definitely an issue. And I guess it probably comes down to, you know, that moment and, and what are you doing in terms of your attention span at that moment? Because one of the things that I've thought about since your talk is, what about all the thousands of hours in the operating room where you are using these mobile electronic devices and everything's fine? Correct. Like you have this track record of being able to multitask in that environment. And, you know, what, what does that say about uh, routine communication? Again, I think back to this case where they said all of the interventions from the anesthesia provider were technically fine. Like they had an expert review the case and say they did everything they should have done. They did. But yet they still had to settle because there was this gray area of, yeah, but they checked their email. Right. How would the jury view that? Right. But the expert didn't link checking their email to distraction in the moment of being able to respond. So I've heard of, I've heard of um, examples where someone is literally like they pull up the cell phone record and you've got like a text message to your sexy boo about, you know, there's like literally like <laughs> sexting. And so here's this text message at, you know, 838 in the morning. And at 838 in the morning, here's your patient's blood pressure. Can you explain that? Right. That's indefensible. You cannot defend right? that. No. But like you said, an email two hours ago or 20 minutes ago, and now there's an issue, yet your technical intervention in that issue is totally fine. Are you liable in that moment? I mean, that you you would think not, right? Because you would think your attention span is appropriate and fine at that moment, but it, ultimately it's not really even for you to decide. Right. How can you explain that to someone that doesn't understand this environment at all? Right. Which is a really interesting concept. Right. I think most people have no idea what we do, to be completely honest with you. Right. Right. Um, which is fine, but then being able to have to explain what we do and why it's probably okay and whatnot to, to someone and make them understand that. Can you do that? I don't know. It's super tricky. And then, especially when there's, you know, money at stake, right? If someone, if someone can see there's an opportunity to point a finger, uh, you know, create a question around performance, uh, that can be super tricky. So I think, you know, all of this creates a couple of things for me. It, it's a warning for an abundance of caution. It definitely makes you think about, what are you doing on your phone? Even in the case when everything's going fine, because you think maybe this is the case where something's not going to go fine. I mean, I think about it every time I use my phone now. I still use my phone somewhat in certain situations. This has changed your behavior. But I think about it every single time. Yes. Yeah. Looking into this has changed the way you use your cell phone. You think? I mean, I thought about it beforehand, but I didn't really know what it meant. Yeah. Like the ramifications. And um, now that I do, I'm even more cautious about how I use it. Right. Right. I think this also brings up the idea for, you know, the residents out there that this could be a source of future research and, and projects like you focused on for yours. Uh, but what is appropriate use? What, you know, how do we look at distraction in the operating room? And also perhaps, as you mentioned earlier, the, the mild degree of multitasking actually improving your ability to stay awake to stay engaged you know because there are times where everything's super smooth and quiet and calm for the anesthesia provider and that's a threat you can't just sit there and stare at the screen right for hours it's a threat to your ability to maintain vigilance so if there's some mild 
you know, kind of uh, cognitive arousal in those moments provided by personal mobile devices. But then again, what's appropriate use, you know? Right. Instagram or reading an anesthesia journal. Is it really any any different? I, I don't know. I, I have don't no know. idea. I don't know. People I, like to say that it is. Oh, I was reading anesthesia content, so it's fine. Right. Well, I don't, you know. But my doing, you know, practice board questions, right? That requires some degree of, you know, thought on my part. I'm probably thinking more about that than I am if I'm on Instagram. I will say I'm never right. on Facebook or Instagram when I'm in the operating room. Right. <laughs> that is right. one thing I right. don't do. However, it's mindless, right? When you when you do do it, you know, you're scrolling on Instagram, it's mindless. It's probably far more mindless than me doing practice board questions. So it's an interesting concept. Totally. Mm-hmm. Totally. Uh, well, Heather Turcott, anything else that you want to say about this topic before I, we go? I don't think so. I just, I'm really glad that... People are thinking about it and talking about it. That was my goal. And I'm glad that people liked, you know, the discussion and that you liked it well enough to talk about it. Oh, I think it's, yeah, I think it's super important. It's part of our lives. I mean, you know, folks that don't operate in the, in the operating room uh, may not understand it, but people who are in the OR, it's super common. They absolutely get it. Correct. So let's, before we go, let's mention that real quick, the sterile cockpit, because we did say we'd talk about that. So, So talk about that and what that means. So I found this term, the sterile cockpit, which is from the aviation industry, but it's mentioned in a lot of the OR literature on distraction. And essentially it's, you know, a policy that the FAA passed that says that um, any any sort of kind of airline, I guess, providers for a better term, I don't I don't know how to operators, operators, I guess. So pilots, co-pilots and all of the staff on the plane. So they have these times where they cannot be doing anything that is not work related, essentially. And they spell this out very well in terms of, you know, takeoff and landing and anything below 10,000 feet, although I think there's some stipulations in there. And it has significantly reduced the number of airline accidents that are caused by distraction. And so when you take this over to the operating room, you can consider the operating room as a sterile cockpit. So there are certainly times when you should not be doing anything except, you know, your task at hand and taking care of the patient, which I think we've already talked about is, you know, induction, emergence, and then, you know, we'll put transport in there. And then any times where, you know, things are not going as they should be. And so I thought that was a really interesting concept. And there's been a lot of research in the aviation industry about that. We haven't really done much research in kind of the operating room um, literature around that. But I think it applies. It absolutely applies. Right. Yeah, it is interesting. And just to tag off on that, you know, there are uh, those key moments when, you know, the, the importance of the moment is different for different people, right? So like induction is super important for anesthesia providers, super important for the patient, not everyone else recognizes that, right? Because I think we make it look so easy. I think that's part of the problem. And the the concept <laughs> of the sterile cockpit being something that everyone in the operating room needs right. to understand and abide by. Right. I was, I was shocked. I can remember when I was a um, critical care nurse and I was shadowing a CRNA. I had this very clear comparison of what an intubation looked like in our med-surg ICU. It was super intense. Of course, the patients were often crumping. So there was like a physiologic stress component to the whole setting. But then when I went and shadowed a CRNA and it was like a vascular OR for a carotid and he intubated this patient effortlessly and was just like talking about his weekend the whole time. And I'm like, you, 
you didn't miss a beat in your conversation about like what you did this weekend while you just intubated that patient. And that's a super common experience for anesthesia providers. But I can remember how much that blew my mind coming out of the critical care environment. And again, that was one of the first times I realized like he just made that look super easy. But this is not an easy thing. But I know this is not super easy. It's not an easy thing. So whether it's induction, I know we have, uh, you know, one physician anesthesiologist we work with who's super interested in keeping the operating room quiet around emergence is another thing. I think that's another time where the rest of the staff in the OR typically relax. Case carts are slamming, doors are shutting, you know, people are leaving, breaking scrub, doing stuff. And we're trying to wake this patient up pull a tube out, determine whether or not they're laryngospasmine. I mean, that's that's a high-risk moment, again, for but that not everyone really understands. They don't under, I don't think most people understand it. There's nothing that drives me more crazy, honestly, than when people come in to start cleaning and the patient's still intubated. Right, yeah. right. Well, Heather, thank you so much. Sure. Congratulations you. on finishing your program. Thank you. And I really appreciate you joining us today to talk about distraction in the OR. Thanks for having me. Hey, y'all, John here. If you're digging the show, will you take a couple of minutes and drop a review of Anesthesia Guidebook on Apple Podcast? Your comments and ratings help other people trust the show. Also, send a link to the podcast to your classmates and colleagues. Word of mouth is the best way for Guidebook to grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.